Who's Walking Into The Office is a podcast about the changing faces showing up at work, how they got there, what gets in the way, and what can we do as a business community to make things better. My name is Josuel Placencia. I am the co-founder and COO of Forefront. Before Forefront, I was on the other side. I was raised by a single mother in Queens, New York. Growing up low-income as a person of color and the first in my family to even graduate high school, I faced tremendous challenges when interviewing and attaining employment at some of America's top companies, from Accenture to Goldman Sachs. This is why this work matters so much for me. The demographics of the workplace are changing rapidly, and today there are more diverse faces in the workplace than ever before in American history. That said, challenges in the workplace that come with this change continue to persist. Who's Walking Into the Office is a fun, practical guide to better knowing and understanding who are these faces, the challenges they face, and what that means to all of us, the American workplace. Today we sit down with someone who knows how to get from point A to point Z. She is a University Inclusion and Diversity Manager at Lyft. Celeste Hippolyte won one of the country's most prestigious college scholarships and went on to use her purpose for good. Hi, Celeste. Good morning. Where are you joining us from today? Good morning. I'm joining you from Brooklyn, New York today. From Brooklyn. Excellent, excellent. And where where did you grow up? I grew up in Brooklyn. I grew up in Crown Heights. Nice, nice. I grew up in Queens. And yeah, yeah, we you're you're actually our second uh, guest from Brooklyn in the show. We had Cindy Joseph, who uh, is also in Brooklyn, and um, you know, right now it's it's uh, almost August, um, so we're still. The pandemic is still active, but hopefully things are a little better in, in Brooklyn than they were a few months ago. They certainly have been, which has been nice. I think if it was the inverse and we were shelter in place in the middle of the summer, I think I probably would have lost my mind for sure. <laughs> like I'm happy to be able to go outside at least a little bit more um, than we were in the spring. Good, good. Excellent, excellent. Well, I really appreciate your time today. Uh, I'm really excited for this conversation, and uh, so are our listeners. Um, let's really um, start by talking about Celeste, not now, but 10, 20 years ago, uh, past that. Tell us where it all started. Talk about your early days in Brooklyn. Uh, how were you as a kid, and how did you end up where you are today? Hopefully you weren't you know, uh, uh, you know, a tough kid, you know steal people's lunch oh no 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 no! <clears throat> i was definitely not a tough kid i think i was a, a goody two shoes <laughs> for lack of better terms um but yeah i think when i when i think about my childhood in brooklyn um so i'm from brooklyn but my family is from saint lucia so of caribbean descent and i'm from crown heights utica avenue where you know the caribbean influence is extremely prominent and so um Although I wasn't born and raised in St. Lucia, I always felt like I was St. Lucian. And all of my friends were from some Caribbean country. Um, but it's really interesting just to see where we all have ended up because for the majority of myself and my friends, our 
families, our parents were immigrants from, you know, another country. So trying to navigate the public school system um, to applying for colleges, to finding internships, to finding a career, to finding jobs. For a lot of us, we did that alone, right? There, we didn't have um, someone who had done it before us who could help to guide us in making good decisions. We kind of relied on our guidance counselors and our teachers and maybe friends who were older than we were to figure out how the heck do we do this, right? Like, how do we, how do we become an adult? How do we become somebody in a country and a culture that is foreign to our parents? Because they don't know either. Um, and so I think I was, um, had always been a very driven person because of that, knowing that I'd have to figure it out because if I didn't figure it out, then no one else was really going to figure it out for me. And of course, this is just my <clears throat> experience and the experience of the folks who I grew up with. This isn't every, you know, first-generation American experience. Um, but we've all found our way some way, some way, somehow. I'm really blown away because everything is so connected. Um, your, your experiences uh, as, a, as a goody two-shoes in Utica Avenue uh, really uh, trying to understand how things work and how to navigate them, but not really being able to rely on what a lot of people rely to uh, in terms of navigating these spaces, which are your own parents. But when your parents are in a completely new context, just like my own parents, uh, also from the Caribbean in the Dominican Republic, um, they, 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 they are not familiar with the systems that we interacted with as kids you had to find a way around uh, yourself. And in that process, you uh, learned your purpose. You learned that you, re you really got something. You really got excited about helping others, right? Uh, in many ways to support the, the young people, to support the next generation that um, you almost see yourself in, in many ways. I wonder if, if you see that. Do you see yourself and some of the people that you work with? Yeah, I think that that's why I um, enjoy campus recruiting overall. So I had a little taste of full, you know, full-time industry recruiting. And, I mean, it was a good experience. But I think the um, thinking about the people who played a very, you know, important role in me being the Celeste that I am today, I think about my college years. That was such an impressionable time, and I was figuring it out as I went. And if I had people who guided me in a different way, my life would have just been different. And that doesn't mean that it would have been negative, right? It just would have been different. And so I know how important it is to have someone who is genuinely invested in you during that time in your life to help you get from point A to point B to point C. I know how important that is. I know how impactful that is. And so it really allows for me to give my 100% all in my, my job because I know that the programs that my team puts on or the events that we put on, the way that we engage with students, like that is going to exponentially change someone's life in the future. Giving them a job at Lyft can help them and their families, right? Giving them access to employees at Lyft as mentors can change the course of, you know, their careers. And I take that 
I take that part, portion of my job really seriously. And I think it goes back to when I was talking about working in PR. Like, I was good at it, but I didn't love it. Like, I love, love, love what I do. And it's mainly because of my story and, you know, and, and how I was able to get to where I am today. Amazing, Celeste. And one thing that, that really stood out uh, was hearing you say that the biggest accomplishment in your life uh, was gaining the Posse Scholarship um, so if funny enough, I also interviewed for the funny, for the posse scholarship ra- rather, and, uh, I didn't get it. So, so it was not the biggest accomplishment of my life. Maybe one of the biggest failures, <laughs> uh, but, but, but it actually turned out to be posse is actually a very influential part of my story, which is really funny how, how, how it works because I found out about Babson because of Posse. I didn't know about the school at all. And in the interview process, I really, really became attached to the idea of going to Babson. And I really liked it. And it was, you know, a good fit because of the entrepreneurship focus and everything. So it almost served as a way to market the school to me. And I ended up going and I was very happy with my experience. And and I would not be here if it wasn't for Posse either, even though I didn't get it. And a lot of my good, you know, best friends or, or posse alumni um, or posse students while I was in campus, uh, because oftentimes the posse students represent some of the only students of color. But one thing I'm curious to, to talk to you about, um, you know, it's too late to get tips on in the interview process, obviously. Uh, but but I would be curious to get your thoughts around how that process um, that that um, the posse interview process what are kind of the the lessons learned it's almost like asking the tips right if uh what it, what did you learn from that process that maybe you use when you're recruiting students today i say that if uh, the posse interview process prepared me for the tech interview process um they're they're different but they're similar in a lot of ways so through posse i was introduced to the hypothetical Um, behavioral interview question model where they'll provide you with a situation and you have to walk, you know, the interviewer step by step through how you would attack or solve that problem. So I would say the biggest lesson that I've learned is to take your time. Take your time in answering the question. Don't rush in just coming up with an answer. Because if you have a very calibrated interviewer, and this is just across the board, not just with Posse, but if you have a very calibrated interviewer, and um, and by calibrated interviewer, I just mean someone who does a lot of interviews, who is working with a question bank that that company uses, for example, right? So for this particular job, there are a set of 15 questions that you can ask to have a better understanding of X, Y, and Z attribute of this candidate. That interviewer has heard every, maybe every possible response to that question. They haven't heard yours though, right? And so instead of you thinking about or rushing to answer a question in the way that you think the interviewer wants to hear it, take your time to fully understand what that question is and how you 
if maybe you utilize some of your experiences in the past or how it relates to something that you've done in the past, how you would solve that problem. You can even talk about edge cases, right? Like, I'd solve this problem this way. However, I can see how it can not work because of X, Y, and Z. And should that happen, I'd solve it that way. I learned that in the posse process. And mainly because it was the first interview process that I've ever had with hundreds of kids in the room. So you had a chance to hear how everyone else was answering it, and you had to figure out a way to be different. And my way of figuring out how to be different was using that edge case model. Like, yeah, I can solve it this way, but then if that doesn't work out, here's my backup plan, right? Or if, if this falls through, we could also pivot and do this. And that really helped me stand out. And I see a lot of um, that. I mean, when you're doing technical interviewing, you have to definitely think about the edge cases. But for non-technical interviewing, I don't think that we always stress the importance of having um, students answer behavioral and hypothetical questions utilizing edge cases as well. So I would say that that would be my biggest tip that I would give or lesson that I learned in the Posse um, interview. No, no, thank you for, for sharing. Um, what about the, the, the part where they um, tell you like to run around the room like a chicken without the head? How do you crack that one? What's your tip there? <laughs> Um, my tip there is to give it your all. Like, don't think you're too cool for school. I think now that I'm a, I've been an interviewer, you know, I interviewed um, during the DAP process, and you can tell the, the student, and, it, and it, it's not held against them, right? But, like, you see the students that are just like, you know what, I'm going to just go for it. I'm going to just do it. You know, they, I'm going to run around, like, my, you know, my head is cut off, and I'm just going to commit. And that sort of like the skill behind that and the um, the determination behind that is what I see. It's not the running around. Yeah, it's not the running around. It's like the determination to commit to this goal. I have a goal. My goal is this internship program. They're not asking me to do anything harmful, right? They're not asking me to like jump off a cliff. They're asking me to, do, and we express this, right? Like, trust the process. They're asking me to do this for a reason. And so when I'm interviewing posse scholars, I look for that. Like, who's actually committing here? Who's actually determined to get to this goal? Who's actually participating and not consuming the conversation, right? Still allowing for other students to prov you know, provide their insights and to speak their minds, but really firm in their thoughts and their beliefs and willing to share that in an authentic way like those are the students that i pick up it's amazing no it's it's um so the process unless it's changed the first uh, round is with hundreds of uh students in the room the second is a one-on-one -on -one interview and then the third is an informal meetup with your college so i actually the the running around uh, like a chicken without a head i actually passed that that one so I got to the second round, the one-on-one. I think that the reason I didn't pass the second round was because I failed account. Why? Well, yeah, I did fail accounting in high school, and I feel that maybe they were a bit concerned about that heading into a business school. But uh, I got into Babson and I passed accounting at Babson, and I was, uh, you know, uh, a, I, I was like point zero one from honors at Babson. So you're saying that Posse made a mistake. That's what you're trying to say. Posse made a mistake, yeah. They made a mistake. I, you know what? Yeah, I they got it wrong. Nor deny. 
<laughs> I can only support your experience. They got it wrong. They got it wrong. <laughs> no, you know, you get it wrong sometimes. You know? <laughs> Shifting gears to, to 2020, and uh, right now we're in the middle of a, of, a, of a pandemic, and we're home, we're sheltered in place. That's why we're not in the fancy studios of Forefront. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm curious to, to hear your thoughts around how recruiting is in a virtual environment. How, how are we supposed to, to, you know, do this? How are we supposed to continue business and uh, can we? Can we not? Yeah, it's hard. I don't even know if it's like a can we or can we not. We have to. We have to continue business. Um, I think that the companies that have been more open to different strategies are ahead of the game. It's the companies that have been very archaic in their recruiting strategies that are scrambling right now. Um because they've been so used to doing things their way and doing things the same way year over year that this pandemic has literally shattered their world. And now they have to come up with a new a new strategy altogether where there are other companies that are just pivoting, literally just pivoting, right? Um, it can be done. It can be done. I'll speak from a campus recruiting standpoint. It's difficult to do a completely virtual campus recruiting strategy because so much of the magic behind university recruiting is actually going on campus and feeling the energy of the, the students and the school, um, you know, feeling so much of the culture. That's definitely the case when it comes to recruiting at HBCUs. Like when we bring um, employees to HBCUs, they always leave feeling like they gained something more than they thought. Right, because like the history and the culture precedes us even getting there. Like it's tangible; you can feel it. The students, the faculty, the professors—they are very proud of going to an HBCU, working at an HBCU. They're very proud in their history. They're very proud of the very notable, you know, alumni, you know, that that graduated from there. And so it's hard. It's hard when that in-person, high-touch experience that is the magic of campus recruiting gets taken away from you. So then what do you do? Um, well, you do everything virtually, right? And you try to do that in the most authentic way possible. So there are a lot of companies that are hosting a lot of webinars and trying to give more insight into what their company does and what people at the company do, which is a great strategy. There are a lot of companies that are investing in virtual career fairs, um, which is also a really good way to meet students during this time. There are a lot of companies that are doing virtual coffee chats. So like, hey, I have office hours. Let's chat for 30 minutes. How are you doing? How's it going? What support do you need? What I'm seeing um, and hearing from a lot of black students, um, there's a lot of anxiety about whether they'll be able to get a, a, an offer right now because they feel like they're competing against a lot of things simultaneously. They're competing against the pandemic they're competing against systemic racism, and they're competing against how systemic racism is embedded in um, interview processes. And what a lot of companies, including Lyft, what we have done, a lot of companies have done an on-campus interview model to remove that barrier, to at least try to minimize the imposter syndrome of feeling like I'm just a number, right? When you give that face-to-face um, that -face interaction, and students can put a face to the brand, 
it kind of calms their nerves a little bit, right? When they know you firsthand, they, they've been talking to you, they met you at multiple career fairs, they met you at multiple conferences, and now you're the one that's interviewing them. There's a comfort level that they have now. Um, and they're just worried. They're worried that their applications are gonna get lost, right? That like, they're just gonna be a number, that they're not gonna have much insight into the interview process, everything is virtual. They're also like fatigued with being on the computer all day. They're on the computer all day for class, and now they gotta be on the computer all day for like recruiting and to find a job. And so it's really, really difficult. Um, but what we have to do, and, I, and what I urge companies to do, is to figure out the strategy that works best for them and to be authentic about it. The same way that we can you know, identify when someone's not being genuine in an in interview process, the candidate can also identify when the company is not being genuine. I think that's why we're starting to see a lot of people call out companies that are now coming out about their stance with Black Lives Matter, right? It doesn't feel genuine. It, it, it's, it's, there's always going to be a misalignment and there's always going to be a lack of trust because it's right now diversity and inclusion is trendy. Right now, if you are not making a statement, if you're not taking a stance, it's going to hit your bottom line. People are not going to use your product anymore. People are not going to invest in your platform anymore. You're going to lose investors, which means that you're going to lose money. And so what that looks like, it looks like the motivation behind the statement is not genuine. It's motivated by getting money, and it's less motivated in, in actually investing in black communities. And so companies are getting the backlash, right? They're getting the backlash when they don't say a statement. They're getting a backlash when they do say a statement. And I'm actually proud of that. I'm happy that that's happening. I'm happy that the people are now taking back the power and that companies are starting to reevaluate their retention plans. Companies are looking at how, you know, people of color have been disproportionately affected by promotion, right? They're looking at employee relations and internal investigations on racism. How did they handle that? They're looking at equitable pay, right, across the company. They're really starting to look really introspectively on how they've been able to build a business model that did not prioritize inclusion and diversity. And they have no choice now but to do that moving forward. So I'm happy that that's happening. I'm happy that I'm starting to see that shift. Um, but yeah, there are going to be companies that won't be able to get all over the hump of mistrust between them and diverse communities because they haven't supported them in the past. I'm with you 100 percent with this um, with this kind of uh, reactive uh, mindset that a lot of businesses have. Um, it's, it's almost like a convenience mindset. And I um, and I'm with you. I think we need to be less reactive and uh, more more proactive when it comes to this and the insights you shared about um you know where people want to work with today are really really cool thank you so much celeste i really enjoyed it we'll talk soon